with it being Pentecost Sunday today, we're breaking into our series on the letters in Revelation. And I want us to consider the first four verses of Acts chapter 2, just to look at what Pentecost means, and especially how it is relevant to us. Pentecost, after Passover, was the most important Jewish festival. Now, we may wrongly think that the day of Pentecost only happened 2,000 years ago, but what happened on that day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 was something during a Jewish festival day. So Pentecost was an annual Jewish festival. So it happened on this particular Pentecost that God poured his spirits. So the word Pentecost comes from the Greek and it means 50th. That's important. 50th. It happened 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. So you have the Passover, and then there's the Sabbath after the Passover, and then the first day after that Sabbath is the Feast of First Fruits. And then 50 days after that feast is the Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Harvest, because now the first fruits were coming in in abundance. And we can see it, can't we, in our Christian timeline. The Passover was when the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, was sacrificed, the Good Friday. The first fruits, the Feast of First Fruits, the first day of the week after Passover, that was Easter Sunday, when Jesus rose from the dead, the first fruits of them that sleep. And now, 50 days after that, the Holy Spirit is given in abundance to the church. And now is a harvest of souls. The 3,000 that were converted under one sermon. Can you imagine that? Think of what would happen today if a preacher somewhere in Wales preached one sermon and 3,000 souls came to faith in Jesus Christ. Do you believe it can happen? God is the God of the impossible. And that harvest of souls was a foretaste of what was to come in the gospel age. So it's very significant. In one sense, what happened on this day of Pentecost was a never-to-be-repeated event for the first time ever, because Jesus had accomplished the work of redemption on the cross, because Jesus had been raised to life and had ascended into heaven, he was now giving the gift of the Father. So Pentecost was the beginning of something. And yet, in another sense, what happened on the day of Pentecost is repeated throughout the book of Acts and has been repeated throughout the history of the church and is still happening in some parts of the world today. An outpouring of 
the Holy Spirit. Let me remind you that it was believers that experienced this. So these people in the upper room were already born again of the spirits. Something in addition to that happened here. And if you look at the book of Acts, I'm just going to give a very selective um, list of verses. There was a prayer meeting, I'm sorry, a prayer meeting in Acts chapter 4 after some of the leaders, Peter and John, had been imprisoned. And in verse 31, we're told, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. So the same people who were baptized, filled with the Spirit in chapter 2, were now filled with the Spirit again in a prayer meeting. And then if you turn to Acts chapter 8, I think this is when Peter preached. Acts chapter 8. This 14, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to the Samaritans, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for they had, uh, he had not fallen upon them yet. So they received the Holy Spirit in Samaria in Acts chapter 8, and then Peter again in Acts chapter 10. This is in Cornelius's household. Acts chapter 10, verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. Again and again and again. What happened on Pentecost started, as it were, a tidal wave. The spirits coming down. And then you have the Apostle Paul experiencing the same thing. Uh, you have him writing his first letter to the church at Thessalonica, and he reminds them of how the gospel came to them. 1 Thessalonians 1, 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. He says something similar to the church at Corinth, and it's similar wording. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So it's a running theme throughout the New Testament that these men were empowered with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes they weren't. Uh, some, uh, on some occasions, somebody fell asleep while the Apostle Paul was preaching and fell out of the window. But many a time, the Spirit was poured upon these apostles, and not just upon the apostles, but upon other believers as well. I just want to ask and answer two questions this evening. The first is, What's the main characteristic of this outpouring of the spirits? It started at Pentecost, and we are living now in the era of the spirits. What's the main characteristic? If you look at your Bibles in Acts chapter 2, verse 2. 
suddenly there came a sound from heaven. To state the obvious, this is God intervening. It's not the church trying to organize something. Uh, You had this phrase used many years ago in America. Uh, People would organize a revival meeting. You've heard of that, haven't you? A revival meeting being organized. Now, that's a contradiction in terms. You cannot organize a revival. Revival comes down from heaven. Now, there is nothing wrong in organizing meetings, and there is definitely nothing wrong in organizing outreach events. But what we're talking about here is not the church organizing something, but God breaking in to a church meeting. I think we've lost that whole notion today of God breaking into a meeting. Do we believe that that is still possible? Suddenly, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. As I said to the children this morning, the wind is the same word as the spirits in both the Hebrew and the Greek. And this is the breath of life coming upon the people of God, sweeping through them. It made a noise. Uh, We're reminded, aren't we, of Jesus' words in John chapter 3. This is how he describes the spirits. Uh, We know the words. I know them best in the authorised version, so let me uh, try reading them in the New King James. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see the effects of the wind as we've seen the effects of it in these last few days. Oh, this is what happens when God pours his Spirit. You don't have to persuade yourself that there's a blessing. You're absolutely convinced of it because you can see the effects. So there is this power. That that is the characteristic. If I had to sum up in one word the main characteristic of what happened on the day of Pentecost and what happens when God pours his spirit, it's power, power divine. And of course, there is this other element. Verse 3, there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. So a flame, uh, like a tongue of fire, rested on each person. In the Old Testament, fire is a sign of God's presence, his known and felt presence. So you get the idea, this is the power of the Holy Spirit, this weight of glory, this sense of God. You can't create that, you can't. And of course, in Acts chapter 2, one of the most obvious characteristics is that they all, verse 4, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, this is different to the tongues mentioned in Corinthians uh, because there you needed an interpreter and it was for devotion. This is God giving different languages to these uneducated Galileans. So the people who were in Jerusalem on the Feast of Pentecost, the Jews had come from all over the then civilized world and they could each identify their own language being spoken. 
Now, in one sense, there's something unique here. There's the reversing of the curse of Babel uh, when God cursed mankind by giving different languages. Now, because the gospel is going out, that curse is being reversed. But there are accounts, even in recent years, of missionaries being given by the Spirit a specific language. But I don't think this is the main characteristic. That's more unique to Acts chapter 2. So what I want us to think of is this power, this sense of God accompanying the Word. As John the Baptist said of Jesus Christ, He's the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Uh, Peter, in his letter, sums up the preaching of the New Testament. I like this. He puts it like this. Those who have preached the gospel to you, they didn't just preach the gospel in word, but by the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven. Now then, we can apply this, this power, First of all, to those of us who are preachers, I know we're a minimum here this evening, but even if you're not a preacher, if you're involved in any Christian service, don't you feel the need of power? When you're speaking to Sunday school kids, and you know that glazed look in their eyes, don't you want God to open their eyes? Divine power divine power or if you're preaching in the open air and people are just walking past disregarding what you're saying or others may be heckling don't you want the word to penetrate into their hearts that's divine power and of course those of us who have to stand in the pulpit Sunday by Sunday this is what we need more and more of this power Uh, This is how one Scottish preacher described it. I like this description. There is sometimes somewhat in preaching that cannot be described either to matter or expression and cannot be described what it is or from whence it cometh, but with a sweet violence it pierceth into the hearts and affections and comes immediately from the Lord. A sweet violence. I like that. As Peter Milsom put it in his interview last week, the Holy Spirit doesn't produce attrition. The danger is is for us preachers to get frustrated because the word isn't having an effect and try to get at you people. Oh no, when the Spirit comes upon the word, it's not that attrition It's this contrition. It's this sweet violence. And you can't resist the spirits of God. Or if you do, you're doing something quite dangerous. Don't you long for that when the word is spoken, whether from the pulpits, whether in Sunday school, youth meetings, open airs. Oh, that we would know this power, this power. It's got nothing to do with eloquence. It's got nothing to do with intellectual abilities. It's just God coming down. Some of you have experienced it 
uh, because in the 60s and 70s in Wales, there was more of a move of the Spirit. One of the closest I've come to experiencing it, not as a preacher, but as a listener, was hearing Elwyn Davis. How many of you would have known Elwyn Davis? He was used by God to found the Evangelical Movement of Wales. And by the time I got to hear him, he was an elderly man. He was so frail, he couldn't stand. He had to sit down. He wasn't preaching. He was giving a lecture. There were only two of us present. It was in the old house in Brintirion. And all I can say is, as Elwyn Davis spoke, and he didn't have eloquence then, he wasn't an orator, but he just opened up Ephesians 3 to us. And as he spoke, the word literally bowled me and my friend over. I can't describe it in any other way. It was nothing to do with Elwyn's power of speech. It was the Spirit taking the man and using him as his instrument that power. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget it. And then for all of us as believers, you see what's amazing here is that there appeared, verse 3, to them divided tongues as of fire and one sat upon each of them. The people in the upper room, most of them weren't preachers. They were just normal Christians like you and me. Now what happened on the day of Pentecost that made it unique was this. In the Old Testament, Everyone that believed was regenerated by the Spirit, just as today. But God poured his Spirit, that is anointed people, only a few times. The prophets were anointed. Uh, David was anointed by the Spirit as king. But they were exceptional cases. Ordinary people weren't anointed. And usually... That known and felt presence of God, that Shekinah cloud, as it was called, was localized to where the temple was. But what's happening here? It's not just one flame of fire signifying the presence of God. Everyone now has that cloven tongue of fire upon him. Every believer now uh, is baptized with the spirits uh, on the day of Pentecost. So what happened to only a few believers in the Old Testament is now available to every believer. That is the meaning of Joel's prophecy. In the last days, the time between the first and the second coming, says God, I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. That means on all kinds of believers. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old dream, your old men shall dream dreams. So it's not just those whom God has called to a special work. It's available to every one of us. Isn't that thrilling? And when you think of what the New Testament church lacked, it's even more amazing. Think for a moment of what they didn't have. They didn't have their own building. I'm sure some churches today wouldn't be able to exist without their own building because they depend on all the activities that can be done. But these people, they didn't have that center. They didn't have much money. These were poor fishermen, most of them. Even the others were probably just from normal, ordinary backgrounds. They didn't have the resources to actually take the gospel forward. 
and they didn't have all the contacts. Yes, there were Nicodemuses and Joseph of Arimathea's, but they were few and far between. The majority of these people did not mix with the great and the good. They were not the movers and shakers of society. They were just people like you and me, ordinary people living ordinary lives. And yet, in one generation, this group of people, this motley bunch, have turned the then Roman Empire upside down. What was the cause of that? It definitely wasn't in them. It was God the Spirit coming upon them and using them. And that can happen to you and me. As Zechariah put it, not by human might or by human power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Isn't that encouraging? God can come upon you, my friend, with all your infirmities, and he can use you. He can use me. We're living in the era of the spirits. I don't know who Vance Havner was. Have you heard of Vance Havner? Whoever he was, he's got some good quotations. He said this. We are not going to move the world by criticism of it. If you read the book of Acts, the moral climate was worse than today. But nowhere do you read of the church criticizing that. We shall not move the world by criticism of it, nor by conformity to it. The danger there is even greater for us, that we just become like the world. What's going to change our society? What's going to change the world? Havner says, it's by the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. That's what we need. Empowered lives. People on fire for the Lord. Um, I was talking to somebody before the service and um, they were reading Tozer and Tozer used to uh, read uh, all kinds of... um, Christians he liked to read the mystics and you wonder how could God uh, use people like the mystics some of them had very strange theological views but this is the point they were on fire for the Lord they were on fire and we sometimes in spite of all our correctness we lack that fire don't we we lack it Like Elijah on Mount Carmel, building his altar. Every stone had to be in place. There's a right emphasis on doing everything decently and in order. But in the end, Elijah didn't stop there. He went on to pray that God would send the fire from heaven. And you know what? Sometimes the fire comes when the stones are not all in the right place. Thank God. Thomas Charles, the 19th century Welsh Christians who really uh, developed the Sunday school movement, a great organiser, Thomas Charles, he wrote this prophetic words, unless we are favoured with frequent revivals and a strong, powerful work of the Spirit of God, we shall to a great degree degenerate and have only a name to live by. Religion will soon lose its vigour. 
the ministry, that's the preaching, will hardly retain its luster and glory, and iniquity will of a consequence abound. Haven't those words come true? Oh, we need the Spirit. What happened on the day of Pentecost wasn't something irrelevant. It wasn't just a one-off. The outpouring of the Spirit is as much needed today as it was then. Now then, my second question. How are we to seek for this, for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Do we seek for it? There was a time when prayer meetings, and I'm not just thinking of our own prayer meetings, but the prayer meetings in the Bala Ministers' Conference, the prayer meetings in many an evangelical church in Wales, would have had this as one big burden. What's happened these last few years? There seems to have been a decline in this whole area of praying that God would pour out his spirit. Maybe we've been put off by certain abuses of it. We've seen, haven't we, uh, some things happen that are at best wacky, that are at worst utterly, utterly carnal. But just because something is abused does not mean that we throw it away. So what did they do before Pentecost? What were they doing when that day of Pentecost was come? Verse 1, they were all with one accord. They were all with one accord. One accord. Uh, you have it in other parts of Acts as well. What does it mean to be of one accord? Uh, you have it in Psalm 133. I read that at the start of our service. It's to dwell together in unity. So on the day of Pentecost, they were dwelling together in unity. And there the Lord commanded the blessing of the outpouring of the Spirit. What does it mean to dwell together in unity? What does it mean to be of one accord? What does it mean to be of one mind? That's another way of putting it. It does not mean that we're uniform. Praise God. It does not mean that we are a cult. It does not mean that we all have to believe in exactly the same things. Some of the examples I've given not just from the New Testament, but from church history, have been of men and even women who held very different views on certain things. So, you can have a Peter. A Peter, an impulsive character, not the greatest of theologians. And a Paul, a much more measured man, a great mind. And yet both kind of men are given this outpouring of the Spirit. So different personalities. Uh, I've mentioned somebody like Thomas Charles, another intellectual man. Uh, but think of somebody like um, Christmas Evans. Christmas Evans, have you heard of Christmas Evans? The one-eyed preacher of Wales? Christmas Evans, oh, Christmas Evans would base one sermon on an illustration. Thomas Charles and Christmas Evans were completely different. And Christmas Evans was a Baptist as well. But both knew this blessing of the outpouring of the spirits. So we can be different 
in theological views, in temperaments, in terms of our cultural backgrounds. But to be of one mind means that in certain things we are absolutely united. The gospel, we are together in that, aren't we? Jesus Christ alone saves. We are together in this, that we cannot do anything. The Spirit must empower. And we are united in this. We don't want to glorify our own names. We want the name of Jesus to be lifted. And so when you have people, Christians, who are of one mind with what matters, in spite of other differences, often God is pleased to pour out his spirit. I sometimes think being of one accord, being of one mind, is to do more with attitude than views. It's a heart matter. It's being in tune, you know, in our hearts with Jesus Christ. And then, what else were they doing? Not only were they of one accord. Let me just mention this because it is important. A few weeks before Pentecost, just before Jesus was crucified, you had these disciples in an upper room. I don't know if this was the same upper room. And they were not of one accord, were they? Do you know what they were doing then? They were not knit together in love to Jesus Christ and in love to one another. Do you know why? They were arguing among themselves as to who would be greatest. Who would have the foremost place in the kingdom? That is the opposite of not being of one mind. And so I think those disciples would still have had the same views then as on the day of Pentecost. But their hearts weren't right. Their hearts weren't right. My friends, this is what we need. We need soft hearts if we are to experience this blessing of an outpouring of the spirits. I've mentioned Elwyn Davis. Let me mention him. I'm going to go on to prayer in a minute and then I'll be done. But it was a prayer meeting, not a committee meeting, a prayer meeting in Dolgelle. I think it was the middle of the 20th century, a student prayer meeting. And before that prayer meeting, there was a blockage that stopped the spirits from coming down. And this is how Noel Gibbard, in his excellent history of the movement, describes it. He says that there were two uh, two of the leaders, and one of them especially was giving way to the roots of pride. And when that was confessed, there was inner cleansing which opened the way for the pouring of blessing upon the whole company. And then when they had the prayer meeting the following day, Elwyn Davis urged them to pray for the spirits. The promise, if he being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? And he was pleading the promise in prayer, but before he had finished, the Holy Spirit came upon him. This is God coming down upon a student prayer meeting and filled me, this is how he put it, to such a degree with love for God that I sat down sobbing and laughing at the same time. Holy laughter. 
And then uh, another person got up, a young person, to pray. Yes, I will gunavin sant, kamervi aninoth blant. Jesus, make a saint of me, thine own child, let me be. And it went from one person to the next. This fire, this pouring out of the gift of the Spirit. One of the leaders, not Elwyn Davis, was lifted and given a vision of whales and of a little fountain starting in Dolgelle and flowing through the rest of Wales. And that happened with the evangelical movement of Wales. The gospel went all over Wales. Oh, my friends, that's within some of your lifetimes. God breaking in, God breaking in. Oh, is there something in our hearts that is blocking God from sending his spirit? And then prayer. They were united in prayer. Oh, I don't want to beat you up in terms of prayer. We're all failures, aren't we, when it comes to prayer? We don't pray as much as we should. But I don't think it was the amount of time that they spent in prayer that made the difference. It was the fact that in their hearts... They were desperate for the Spirit to come down. They could not take no for an answer. Either God would empower or it was all over. Now, this doesn't lead to passivity. Uh, This is what I don't want us to think. There's been an unhealthy emphasis in Wales over the years that unless we have revival, there's no point doing anything. That's not New Testament Christianity. I believe we should carry on preaching. We should carry on praying. We should carry on witnessing. We should carry on serving Jesus where he has put us. And we can do that with joyful hearts. But at the same time, there can be a longing in our hearts for this outpouring of the spirits. That's that's what we need. Well, I've got to come to a conclusion here. Uh, I have too much... Uh, material uh, but these people they gave themselves to prayer they addicted themselves to to pray they couldn't help it they hungered for God that sense of his presence listen to the interviews on before they leave the stage those men I think many of them experienced a touch of the Holy Spirit which made the difference Oh, may we again pray for the Spirit, personally, corporately. Let me give you this example. I've often been encouraged by it. I used to spend my summer holidays cat-sitting. It was my sister's cats, and unfortunately the cat has gone to where cats go. And one time I was looking after the cats, and it would get up really early in the morning, and it would want food. It was hungry. And so it would come and meow. And it would start off just a normal meow. But then, because I was still asleep, the meow would get louder, right? It was desperate. And then there would still be no response. So we would come upstairs and it would try to do this. You know, when they do that to the carpets. And it would open the door with its paws. It was desperate. And there'd be still no answer. And then he would jump onto the bed. And then he would come right up to me. And he would do that. And then he would start biting me. And by this time, I'd given up. 
Does that remind you, not of a cat, but of a widow? The importunate widow that Jesus spoke of. She wouldn't take no for an answer. Well, may we seek on. I don't want to discourage anybody. I want you to carry on with your Christian lives. We have every need in Christ. I don't want us to be passive. But what I'm pleading for is that we realize that there is an intimacy to be had. There is a reality of not just experiencing Christ, but of knowing New Testament Christianity to be had. And it is possible to seek God for the heavens to open and for showers of blessing to come down. It is possible. And once you've tasted just a little bit of that, just a little bit, it might not be here, it might be somewhere like India or Moldova, once you've known just a tiny bit of that, you're never going to be satisfied with anything less. It doesn't mean you're discontent. It does mean that you're hungry, like my sister's old cats. You're hungry for that once more. Because it's not in the end the Spirit, is it? It's the Lord. It's the Lord. When he is come for his name's sake. Now let us um, sing about that. Uh, This is another, I think this is another hymn of Wesley's. All glory to God in the sky. This is a prayer for the Spirit of Christ to come upon us. And the meaning of concord (laughs) in this hymn is not the... uh, the aeroplane, but it means uh, being one in Jesus Christ. So let's stand and we'll sing in our hearts.
Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Break me, melt me, mould me, fill me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Now may the love of God, the grace of Jesus Christ, and those sweet influences and powerful influences of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forever. Amen.